And would you please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2. And we're looking at verses 18 to the end of that chapter today. Next week we have Paul Kupke coming to preach God's word to us from Kingston Reformed Church. And then the following week, uh, next week I'll be preaching at Stanley Presbyterian. And then the following week one of our elders, Derek Clack, will be finishing his sermon on Psalm 40. So... It'll be good to, to hear the, the uh, sequel to his first sermon on Psalm 40. And today we're looking at Jesus' fourth letter to the churches, to the church in Thyatira from Revelation 2 verse 18. And please have your Bibles open in front of you. Please follow along with what I'm saying. Please see these words written here for yourselves. When I introduced the first sermon in this series of letters in Revelation chapter 2, I introduced this concept of generational churches, and I think it struck a bit of a chord. I've had many comments about this idea of uh, first, second, and third generation churches. This idea that there is a a first generation church where there's uh, Bible knowledge, where people are working hard in the church, And there is heartfelt faith and repentance. And then the second generation arises and they also have the truth, they they know the word, they've got the right theology, but and they're serving well, but without the heartfelt faith and repentance. And then the third generation church, uh, seeing their parents who uh, are saying the right things and are serving well, but they, they see that there's no heart to it. They see there's no real faith or passion for Christ going on. Uh, not seeing that, that kind of hypocrisy, that kind of mismatch between what is being said and what is being done, the third generation seemed to fall away altogether, lacking knowledge and service, and faith, and repentance. And so very often as we look at the history of the church, we see these these generational shifts between the church. And Cornerstone is, as we know, entering into its second generation. The church was founded some 16 years ago, and we are entering into that that danger zone where, yes, we, we have the right... Theology, we have the Westminster Confession of Faith as our subordinate standard. People are working hard, serving well in the church. But is there that heartfelt repentance and faith? Is that still in the church? Are we going to see that going on in the church? And that's why these seven letters to the seven churches are so important because they are written by Jesus Christ to, a, to second generation churches Churches that are very much in that danger zone of losing repentance and faith and of fading away into nothingness. Jesus tells us in these letters how we can avoid becoming another statistic, another church that uh, had a a healthy first generation but then died off in the second and third generations. So let's look together 
at Revelation 2 from verse 18. Let me begin by praying. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll give us those listening ears that we need to have to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Please give us those listening ears this morning. Amen. Jesus writes to the church, to the angel of the church in Thyatira. And of the seven cities described in Revelation 2 and 3, Thyatira was the smallest of them. It was the least important, the least significant, politically speaking, of the seven cities. But it gets the longest letter. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And you recall the statue of Nebuchadnezzar that Nebuchadnezzar had in his dream of the earthly empires, the head of gold, the torso of silver, uh, the belly and thighs of bronze and the feet of clay, a, a, a picture of how fragile earthly empires are. We see that Jesus, his reign and his rule are built not on feet of clay, but on those feet of burnished bronze. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his eyes are like blazing fire. His eyes see everything. They see what's on the surface and they see what's under the surface. They can those eyes of blazing fire which peer, pierce into our hearts and our minds see all. And what does Jesus see? What do those eyes of blazing fire see in the church in Thyatira? Jesus says, I know your deeds, your love. It's the word agape, love and faith. Your service and your perseverance, your steadfastness, you are standing firm. And that you are now doing more than what you did at first. So the church in Thyatira is not like which other church? It's not like the church in Ephesus, which had forsaken its first love. Here is a church that is doing more than what it did at first. This second-generation church was looking good. It was looking healthy. It was looking like it had avoided the, the, the trap that the, first, that, that the church in Ephesus had fallen into. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. Jezebel, the most evil of the queens of Israel, probably the most evil woman in the Bible. I think if, if you had to ask anyone who's the most wicked woman in the Bible, they'd probably say Jezebel. If you were a, a Jewish family, you wouldn't name your daughter Jezebel, that's for sure. And she was married to the most evil king of Israel, King Ahab. Jezebel is described as the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. So she was a princess. 
She was the daughter of a pagan king. The Sidonians were Baal worshippers. And Jezebel certainly kept up that tradition of Baal worship. She personally financed the prophets of Baal to do their work in the nation of Israel and she arranged for the, the murder of the prophets of the Lord. And then, of course, when Ahab wanted the vineyard of Naboth, you'll recall from 1 Kings, and Naboth wouldn't sell his vineyard to, to, to King Ahab, what did Jezebel say? Leave it to me. And she arranged for Naboth to be murdered and for her husband to take over his vineyard and his property. And so Jezebel is one of the most wicked women in the Bible and she spends the last moments of her life doing what? She knows she's about to die. She spends her last moments arranging her hair and putting on eye makeup. And so Jezebel was apparently an inveterate seductress. And even in her last moments, she is addicted to her seducing ways. Jezebel personifies anti-God teaching, cruelty, greed, and vanity. That's who Jezebel personifies. That's what Jezebel personifies. Now, King Ahab, what did he do about this? What did King Ahab do about his wife who was murdering the prophets of the Lord, financing the prophets of Baal, arranging for assassinations? What did Ahab do about it? Nothing. He did nothing. He tolerated his wife's wicked ways. And this is the accusation that Jesus brings against the church of Thyatira. You tolerate, he says, you put up with that woman Jezebel. In fact, the word woman could also be translated wife. Like Ahab, who tolerated his wicked wife and her ways, you tolerate the prophetess Jezebel. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into porneia. And what does that word porneia mean? It means sexual immorality of all kinds, and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Are you hearing what Jesus is saying to the church in Thyatira? He's saying that just as Queen Jezebel seduced Israel into Baal worship, by the way, it wasn't just Baal worship, it was God plus Baal. Yeah, you can worship the Lord, but as long as you worship Baal as well, God plus Baal. The Thyatirans were also being seduced into a Jesus plus Christianity. Yes, you can be Christians. Yes, you can worship Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. And you can believe certain other things and you can live in certain other ways. And this was Jesus' accusation to the Christians in Thyatira. 
you have been seduced. You have been misled into thinking that it's okay to be a Christian and to do certain other things in your life. That it's okay to be a Christian plus something else. And Jesus names specifically sexual immorality. Now, I've got to tell you that I'm tired of talking about sexual immorality in these sermons. I really am. It's the last thing I want to do. I don't like talking about this awful thing and this awful problem of sexual immorality and pornography. But I note that our Lord Jesus brings it up again and again and again. He is relentless. And so it would be very wrong for me, who is standing here not as a private individual, but as an ambassador of the king, telling you what the king is saying from his word. It would be very wrong for me to, to just gloss over that because I don't want to keep talking about it. Well, Jesus does want to keep talking about it. And he said to the church in Thyatira, you have been misled. You've been seduced into thinking that it's okay to be a Christian and to indulge in sexual immorality at the same time. And I can tell you that I can think of three men right now, not in this church, who identify as Christians and who, four actually, and who are committing adultery and who somehow think that that is acceptable to be a Christian and to be an adulterer. Somehow they have worked it out in their minds that you can be both at the same time. They have been seduced by Jezebel. They have been seduced by this false teaching, this false idea that you can be a Christian and an adulterer at the same time. And you might be sitting here this morning, male or female, and you might think that it's okay to be a Christian and to indulge in pornography, movies with sex scenes. If that's the case, you've been seduced. You are being grossly misled by the spirit of Jezebel. The Christian must deal violently with pornography. What did our Lord Jesus say? If your right eye causes you to lust, gouge it out, he said. Cut off the right hand. In other words, do whatever it takes. Deal with this. Don't tolerate this. You can't tolerate this. You can't be a Christian and not be actively repenting of sexual immorality. That is the error of Jezebel. You can't be a Christian and hoard your wealth at the same time. That's to be seduced by Jezebel. You can't be a Christian part-time. And maybe there are some here this morning who think of the Christian faith as, well, I've got my life, 
and my dreams, my hopes, I do what I want to do, and I'll come to church on Sunday, and that feels good, kind of adding Jesus to your life. That's the spirit of Jezebel, part-time Christianity, putting Jesus second to houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, or land, as he himself said. The Thyatirans were tolerating this. They were tolerating it in themselves. They were tolerating it in the church. And we heard last week our Lord Jesus say so clearly to us in his letter to Pergamum that there is a collective responsibility and that it's very wrong for a church to tolerate sin in its midst, that we must be encouraging each other when we're doing well and admonishing each other when we're not, that the leadership of the church must be willing to lovingly discipline those who are falling into sin and unrepentance. The Thyatirans were tolerating Jezebel, and Jesus held this against them. You see, Jesus, if you're a Christian, then Jesus is your husband, he's your spouse. And the Christians of Thyatira were dallying with another woman, another person, another way, the spirit of Jezebel. They were being unfaithful. And so he says in verse 21, I have given her time to repent of her immorality but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Jesus is a patient husband, but his patience was running out with the Christians of Thyatira. And he was about to lead those who led others astray and he was about to, to judge those who were being led astray. Let me just say that again. He was about to judge those who led others astray and he was about to judge those who were being led astray. I will strike her children dead. A clear reference to two kings, chapter 9, chapter 10, where Jesus brought... Destruction to Jezebel and Ahab and their entire dynasty. Jesus is saying, read 1 Kings 9. Look at what Jehu did to Ahab and Jezebel. I'm coming to do the same amongst you if you don't repent of her ways. And then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to Jezebel's teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, 
I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Look here at how Jesus likens this teaching of Jezebel to Satan's so-called deep secrets. What's he, what's he doing here? Why does he say this? Well, what he's saying is that, that as Christians, we can fall into this trap of just being too clever for ourselves and interpreting the Bible in, a, in, a, in such a clever way. But all we're actually doing is allowing ourselves room to be a Christian and to indulge in our sins. And so this would be an example of a, a so-called deep secret of Satan. That you can be a Christian and be an adulterer. That would be one of his deep secrets. That you can be a Christian and dabble with pornography. That you can be a Christian and hoard your wealth. That you can be a part-time Christian. These are the, the, the whisperings of Satan. And we might justify them by saying, well, I just know better. I know that, that many Christians say that we shouldn't do these things, we can't do these things, but I know better. I have a deeper reading of Scripture. I have a deeper understanding. I'm smarter than others. Well, you're just a victim of Satan's deep secrets. And Jesus will have none of it. And he says, to those who do not hold to Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Brothers and sisters, this is Jesus' message to you. Hold on. Hold on. The temptations are coming. Jezebel's prophecies come. The so-called deep secrets of Satan come. Hold on. Hold on to what you know is true. And to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. Right now, says Jesus, we live where Satan has his throne, and that's very hard. But he's saying that the tables will be turned, and I will return in victory, and we will join him in his victory. And to that one, he says in verse 28, I will also give the morning star. I will also give that one. Who, who's that one? Who, who's the one who gets the morning star? Who is it? It's the one who holds on. The one who holds on. The one who says no to, to Jezebel and her seductions and her deep secrets. 
The one who reads the Bible as it is written and does what it says, who holds on, I will give that one the morning star. And this is one of the most beautiful metaphors, pictures of Jesus Christ that we find in all of Scripture. I remember when I was 21 and I went camping to a wilderness area in the southwest of Western Australia. And on this particular night, we were camping and we didn't have proper tents at this point. We just had the kind of ground sheets covering us. And it was, uh, I was there in my sleeping bag under this ground sheet. And that night the wind blew and it began to rain. And I woke up feeling quite uncomfortable. And the reason was because the rain had blown the ground sheet halfway across my sleeping bag so that the rain was pouring down the ground sheet onto my sleeping bag, kind of into my sleeping bag. And it was cold and it was wet. And you were, it was just impossible to do anything about it. It was impossible to sleep. And it was a very, very long night of feeling cold and wet. Anyone else had this happy experience? I noticed how young people cut their camping trip one night short. Maybe they had a similar experience on Bruni, I'm not sure. But it was a long night. And I can tell you that when lying awake, wet and cold, when I saw those first rays of dawn, what a magnificent sight that was. How magnificent to see the first light because I knew that the night was coming to an end and soon I'd be able to get up and dry myself off and be free from the, the cold and the wet and the damp. It was a glorious sight seeing first light, the morning star, the dawn. And this is a beautiful picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the morning star. He is the one who heralds the dawn. He's the light that's shining in the darkness, a light that's saying the darkness is about to come to an end. Your suffering is about to come to an end. I'm going to return and I'm going to make all things right. And that's why when Jesus was born, how did God advertise his birth in Bethlehem? It was a star in the east, you'll recall. A new star in the east appearing to the Magi. A star that went ahead of them. I don't know how that works. Just does. A star that went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And so the birth of Jesus was heralded by this star, this bright star, this strange star that, that, that moves through the sky and stops over the place where he was born. Because he was to be a star, the morning star, the light heralding to the world that your pain and darkness and suffering is about to come to an end. And in the, the very last chapter of the book of Revelation, Jesus says in chapter 22, verse 16, 
I, Jesus, am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The morning star that shines in the darkness is Jesus Christ. He is the light that dispels the darkness. Now, brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus, one of the things he says to each and every one of the churches, he says, I look at you and I know, he says, I know. I know what's going on in your church. I know what's going on in your life. And he is looking at each of you this morning with those eyes of blazing fire. And he knows, he knows what is going on in your life. And he knows what your struggles are. He knows your pain. And he knows that some of you now are in darkness. A darkness that seems unending and without hope. And he sees that some of you are in the darkness of loneliness. And we often associate loneliness with, with, with old people. But I know that there are young people who are desperately lonely. Loneliness is a scourge that, that, that strikes all. And if you are lonely, he knows. He knows. And he is the bright morning star. And he is saying, your loneliness will end. It will end. And I will come. I'm going to free you from that. And some of you are grieving. Some of you have lost those you love, those are dear to you, and you're grieving, and it just seems unending. And people say, well, it, it, it gets better over time, but it's not getting better for you. And Jesus is that bright morning star, and he's the light shining in the darkness of your grief. And if you hold on to him, the grief will come to an end. And some of you are in pain, and your, your bodies are breaking down. You're sick. You're hurting. You're not able to do things that you love to do. And it's a darkness, and it seems to be a darkness without end. And he's saying, I am the morning light, Venus, the, the, the dawn star. And it will come to an end. Hold on, he says. And he looks with his eyes of blazing fire and he, he knows that some of you look at this world and you're despairing. Any like that? You look at the world and it just seems to be going from bad to worse and you lie awake at night and you worry about where the world is going and where your own family is going, and it seems to be a darkness without end, and he's saying, I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm the light in the darkness. Dawn is breaking with me. Hold on, he says. 
And finally, some of you are struggling with sin. And it's an awful struggle. And every day is hard. And you're pulled, violently pulled in your spirit to do things that you know are not right. And you struggle with that. And it's a daily struggle and it's hard. And it seems to be endless. You don't see any hope. There is hope, right? The star is shining. Dawn is breaking. Jesus is coming. There is an end. There is an end to that daily struggle with sin. Hold on, he says. Just hold on. That's all I ask you to do, he says. I'm not laying any other burden on you. Just hold on. And I am coming. And your trials and temptations and sufferings will come to an end. When I woke up this morning, it was such a beautiful sunrise. Did anyone else get to see the sunrise this morning? Really? Am I the only one who saw this? It, it really, it, it was one of those magnificent sunrises where just enough clouds lit up that glorious purple and gold colour. You know the, the kind of sunrise. I, I was thinking about this passage. I was thinking about Jesus ushering in the dawn and I walked out of the front door and saw that. And it was beautiful and powerful, and it reminded me of the power and the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ, the morning star, the dawn, the light of dawn. And he says to you in darkness, not only am I the one who will bring an end to this darkness, but he says, look at verse 28, I will give you the morning star. I will give you myself. Jesus, in all of his beauty, power, and glory, I give you myself, he says. Just hold on. I am yours, and you are mine. And the darkness will soon be over, and we will be in glorious light together. Hold on, brothers and sisters, hold on. The light is coming, and he has given you himself. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches today. Amen.